Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, what a day it was yesterday. The news that broke just before 10 o'clock yesterday morning that Nicola Sturgeon was due to step down as First Minister of Scotland uh, sent shockwaves throughout the political community, not only in Scotland, but also uh, in the UK, in Europe, in the world, actually. Uh, Because now it would seem that the story has become even bigger today than it was yesterday. Uh, It broke, of course, on my show yesterday, as all the big resignation stories do in politics, it would seem. Coming up later on, we're going to talk to Alex Salmond, the former leader uh, of the SNP, uh, the former sort of, you might say, mentor of Nicola Sturgeon, the man who kind of brought her into politics, trained her up uh, to be the leader when he stepped down in 2014. Uh, She now, Unfortunately, though, is not in the same position because she's looking down the barrel uh, of a sort of um, abyss, if you like, because there's nobody really in place to succeed her. She's going to step down as leader of the SNP. And here's what I'm going to say straight up. I think the SNP is in a pretty poor position because independence now is out the window. She hasn't been able to get any more people to believe in independence than there were in 2014. The figures are more or less exactly the same. So if they did have a referendum again today, uh, basically it would be, no, we don't want to leave the Union. We want to stay as part of Great Britain, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We'll be talking to Isabel Oakshot first up this morning. We'll be talking to Alex Salmon later on uh, in the hour to get his view on where the SNP goes now and what it means actually for not only devolution in Scotland but also devolution in Wales. Because let's not forget, you know, the reverberations from Nicola Sturgeon's resignation are not just going to hit Scotland because they're going to hit people like Keir Starmer, a man who used to look to Nicola Sturgeon in sort of admiration to see her as this kind of totemic figure this woman who uh, sort of ran Scotland but also had a huge influence over British policy because during Covid in particular she kept sort of wrong-footing the Tory government she kept wrong-footing Boris Johnson and his cabinet um, and she seemed to be a much cleverer operator as it turns out than she actually was it may turn out as well there's much more to the story than meets the eye the sudden resignation uh, has got all sorts of people asking all sorts of questions but we want to hear from you of course as well 0344 499-1000 because she's the type of leader like Jacinda Ardern who loved the idea of big government, who loved the idea of telling you what you can do. And I think for those of us who prefer liberty, who prefer our governments to be small and we prefer our governments to stay pretty well out of our lives, I think it's a great victory for us. But we'll be talking about that, plus a great many other things as well. Yvette Cooper's talking this morning uh, on behalf of the Labour Party about how few police there are out there on the streets. We've also got some new uh, crime figures out this morning as as well. We're going to be analysing those. Uh, it looks as though the sentencing statistics are going to show that unfortunately not enough people are being locked up, just as we said earlier in the week. Not enough people are spending enough time in prison and too many people are being harmed because too many other people 
are walking around with weapons. 0344 499 1000. It's Thursday, so Helen Nicklin is here, of course, with the Thursday Club. We'll be talking about the ridiculous profits uh, from British gas and why we cannot actually get cheaper energy in this country. And also Howard Cox will join us with the news uh, that in Wales, announced yesterday that they're going to give up on any road building programs because, quite frankly, they don't want you to drive a car anywhere. Unbelievable. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place for common sense. So I want you to join us for the next three hours. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on a very auspicious day. It's not particularly nice out there this morning, but I expect... Uh, the, the cloud seeming to lift as we go through uh, to one o'clock when Ian Collins will be taking over. Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper, uh, as we say, is going to deliver Labour's vision for law and order in a speech in central London. We'll hear more uh, from her in a little while. We'll talk to uh, our political editor, of course, Peter Cardwell, about that later. But let's kick things off this morning with Isabel Oakshot. Uh, she was on last night in for Piers Morgan on Piers Morgan Uncensored. She's talked to TV's international editor. Isabel, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Well, I'm excited about your interview with Alex Salmond. Um, we had him on Piers Morgan's show last night. And, um, you know, at that point, he was still absorbing, yeah. I suppose, the shock of it. He wasn't expecting Nicola Sturgeon to resign. Now, it's worth remembering that his relationship with Nicola Sturgeon has been through some serious ups and downs, yeah. um, more down lately than... Uh, than up, uh, they've had a they had a bitter fallout, and he's no longer part of the SNP. But what I would love you to really push him on is the extent to which he might be able to stage a dramatic comeback. Mm. Um, we we tried to get some answers from him about that last night on Piers's show, uh, and you know he was pointing out fairly reasonably that he is not even in the SNP. He's a leader of another party that. Many people uh, won't necessarily particularly have heard of called Alba. Yeah. The question is, could he perhaps form some sort of alliance with the SNP? And I mean, my view is that the SNP has so few big figures, you know, nobody of Nicola Sturgeon's stature that perhaps Alex Salmond is the only one that can save the cause. Well, I think you're absolutely right, because, of course, Alex Salmond, when he stepped down in 2014 because of the result of the referendum, which was no, thank you very much indeed, we don't want to be independent, he had already got a successor ready-made, you know, which was a brilliant move by him, because I think all great leaders have great successors, and that's how it works. But she hasn't done that. She's had this kind of cult of personality. And so she has effectively been a sort of one-woman political party because I would, I would be sure that if you walked up and down any high street in this country and asked anyone to name another member of the SNP, I don't think they'd be able to. Yeah, I mean, the only person they would probably say is Alex Salmon. Yeah. Maybe uh, Ian Blackford. We had him on the show last yeah. night as well. I mean, looking at the, um, the runners and riders to take over... Um, I have to say, I'm afraid that I was sort of rapidly Googling who these people yeah, are. You underwhelmed. Know, one of my favourites is a um, relatively young member of the Scottish Parliament called Kate Forbes, who's currently um, on the Treasury side of things, um, north of the border. Um, no public profile down here in, in England no. at all. No, and, and the one thing we know about her is that she's a member of a rather, um, I'm not going to be too uh, disparaging about it, but a sort of small, a small and, and perhaps rather um, conservative with a small C church up in the north of England. I'm not sure if she's one of the wee frees, but it's, it's that kind of vibe, isn't it? 
Well, she's certainly reported to be um, a member or a family or members of the We Free Church, sort of evangelical mm. um, church, which is pretty strict on issues like gay marriage and abortion and, you know, even sort of having any fun on a Sunday. Yeah, well, these are people, I think, in the north of, uh, of, the, of, of right. Scotland when I was there and when you were there who didn't want any ferries arriving on islands on a Sunday and didn't want anybody using planes on a Sunday so nobody could go anywhere. Reminding me of my own childhood where, you know, there was a sort of early in my childhood, you know, you can't do anything on a Sunday. It's not allowed to be any fun. Don't want to go back to those days. But whoever takes over has got an almost unscalable mountain to climb. Yeah. You know, did Nicola Sturgeon throw in the towel because basically the cause, the independence cause has kind of hit an insurmountable roadblock. They can't get another referendum because Westminster won't allow it. The polls are going in the wrong wrong direction. And there is this, this sort of aspect of it that bugs me no end, which is the kind of complete fundamental inconsistency of saying uh, the SNP, they say they want to rejoin the EU. I mean, it appears to be Brexit that put uh, the SNP into such a tailspin and, and really galvanised them to go for another referendum. Um, but what the, the, the sort of illogicality of saying, um, actually, we hate Brexit, we want to rejoin the EU, but we'd actually like to split from you, our, our ancient historic partners. Mm. And, and that will surely be a lot easier than leaving the EU. I don't think so. <laughs> well, this is the thing. And all of those things that, that sort of, um, I suppose, identified Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, uh, you know, one, independence, two, much more latterly, um, this gender ID law, which now appears to be in all sorts of difficulties because nobody can even agree on what should happen. And I was listening to uh, the current leader of the SNP in Westminster this morning saying, well, you know, we're not really sure what we're going to do. We'll wait and see who becomes the next leader. They're talking about cancelling uh, their conference, which was due to take place, I think, on March the 19th. You know, so the whole party is in kind of disarray, which means that the Scottish Parliament is in disarray. Their deal with the Green Party, uh, which has got them into so much trouble, is also in disarray. But it's also fascinating to me how this will affect people like uh, Mark Drakeford in Wales and even Keir Starmer in London. That's right. Now, I, I love a bit of disarray as a journalist. We Our votes are always for disarray, aren't they? <laughs> um, but I don't like the kind of disarray that's going to make Keir Starmer's path to power um, an awful lot easier. Mm. And... I think that today the Labour leadership uh, here in uh, Westminster will be quietly very, very pleased indeed at the departure of Nicola Sturgeon. It punches a hole, I think, in um, the, the great edifice of Scottish nationalism north of the border. And with that, potentially um, making a number of seats that would have been impenetrable for Labour now potentially winnable. And Scotland has been a real barrier um, to a, a healthy Labour majority for a very, very long time. Mm. And they must now sort of smell blood. I think that, that it's potentially transformative uh, of the political landscape for that reason. You know, there are a lot of seats in Scotland and suddenly a good number of those may now be winnable yes. to Labour. Well, I always used to say, without the 48 Labour seats that they used to have out of the sort of 56 or so, um, Labour could never get into government with a proper majority. But now there is a possibility that that could happen. Talk Radio and Talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Isabel Oakeshott is here with us, Talk TV's international editor. Also back tonight, of course, uh, at 8 o'clock with one Richard Tice uh, in for Piers Morgan on Piers Morgan Uncensored. Isabel, listen, listening to, um, uh, to Yvette Cooper there, very much trying to make out that she's very uh, sort of well-versed and experienced in matters of law and order, talking about having briefings from, you know, the, uh, the intelligence chiefs and the uh, various uh, police officers as well. But an interesting uh, tweet we've just had in here uh, from Well, who says, Yvette Cooper is talking about keeping communities safe and strong. Her neighbouring constituency is Batley and Spen, where a teacher has been in hiding for fear of his life from uh, Muslims for nearly two years. Cooper is silent on that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of problems in law and order, but that's a, a rather interesting juxtaposition for her. Crikey. Um, sounds an interesting story. I'm willing to give Yvette Cooper and actually the a potential Labour administration the benefit of the doubt on law and order, because frankly, the Conservatives over the last 12 years have achieved very little. Mm. And in many places, in many areas, it appears that things have got extremely much worse uh, and it's fair for Yvette Cooper to say she's very experienced in this area you know she was a long-serving cabinet minister under the uh, Blair Brown administration um, and I think she's pretty credible actually um, I hope I'm not being naive here you know she is an experienced operator and I think Labour are smart enough to realise uh, that people in this country are absolutely fed up of uh, what appears to be the semi-collapse of law and order, and particularly uh, the desperate state of the justice system uh, in terms of the backlogs that were caused by uh, the response to the pandemic. And I think there's a, an open goal for them here. Yeah, I think so, because it's very difficult, isn't it, to find anything that you can defend this government on. I mean, I know that, you know, people expect us here on Talk TV to be, you know, cheerleaders for the Tory party. But, I mean, I'd challenge anyone to find somebody on this station right now who's a cheerleader for the Tory party because they're just not getting really very much right. I think the only thing that I could point to in recent weeks uh, was the appointment of Lee Anderson uh, as deputy chair, which seems to have at least, you know, shaken things up a bit. But apart from that, they're not really doing very much very well, are they? Well, and the irony is, if you actually ask a, um, a Tory MP to give you a list of, or even name a couple of things that the government is doing brilliantly, um, they struggle. They just do, because what is there to say? The country's in an absolutely dire state. Um, it's their fault. It is. And they can't really blame anybody else. I mean, they keep going on about COVID and they keep going on uh, about Ukraine. But we all know that there was an awful lot going wrong before any either of those things happened. The NHS um, has been in decline for a long time, and I'm not blaming necessarily the government just for that. Um, but, you know, all sorts of things, the migrant boat problem, everything has been going on for years and years and years. And it seems as though they've been sort of caretaker managers of an operation without really doing anything. Yeah, that's right. And I had an um, extraordinary message from a contact of mine who's a, a consultant oncologist right. in one of the major London trusts. And he was um, telling me that they recently had an event um, held by a, a quite a prominent uh, gay rights speaker um, all about, you know, the need for more um, funding and resources for uh, trans uh, healthcare issues. Um, and my contact was pointing out that the person that led that event is himself a very eminent surgeon who is now the head of diversity at the trust rather than right. spending his time being a surgeon, which is what he does best. And, you know, look, we've utterly lost our way here. 
where in the NHS there's a desperate shortage of specialists, a desperate shortage of consultants and doctors and GPs and so on. And now we find that some of those brilliantly qualified clinicians are actually spending a chunk of their time leading diversity and inclusion. And everybody who says, oh, we must get more money into the NHS doesn't seem to get it, you know, because there's loads of money in the NHS. It just needs to be properly channeled and properly spent and properly allocated. You know, there's no need for more money. What there is is there's more need for common sense, it seems to me. Yep, and it was ever thus. So uh, the, the, the Tories have presided over a dismal record on this. And, you know, you, um, our colleague um, David Bull this morning had a fascinating interview with Carol Sikora about the decision to abandon uh, having a particular, a specific cancer strategy. Uh, Carol Sikora, the consultant cancer expert, was saying the only other countries that don't have uh, specific cancer strategies are placing like, places like Afghanistan. Oh. Um, well, I fear this is the way we're heading. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, somebody said to me the other day that Kazakhstan um, had shorter waiting lists for doctors. And I said, well, probably Kazakhstan's health service is a lot better than ours in every respect. You know, we are now probably one of the worst health services, I think, in the entire world. I've lost track of the number of strikes that are going on. I walked into the office this morning. There was a huge line of people snaking around London Bridge Station, which made me uh, convinced that there must be just another bus strike going on. I mean, I don't even know who's on strike anymore, but it seems to be every day there's somebody not working. No, indeed. Well, there have been no trains to our area for the best part of five or six days now because there's been a so-called landslip oh, somewhere yes. up the line. It's not the bloody Turkish earthquake. No. You know, it's a bricks on the line. Uh, but for some reason, that's an indefinite problem. So no services there. I went into the pharmacy yesterday to pick up a repeat prescription medication I've been on for several years. They wouldn't hand it to me because the pharmacist hadn't turned up and only the pharmacist can reach oh for that off the shelf and give me the medicine. Uh, you know, this this type of bureaucracy uh, and petty regulation is what's throttling our country. It really is. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way of things now in almost every aspect of everything that we do. I mean, we were talking uh, later on in the show about several things, including Centrica, the, the owner of British Gas, making a £3.3 billion profit. You and I have no objection to people, we've said this before, making a profit. But at what point is that going to be kind of, you know, handed down to the consumer? At what point when the, the gas price is as low as it is now, when is that going to be kind of passed on to us? You know, nobody ever seems to be able to answer that question. Well, basically, never. There's your answer. Um, I'm not sure what Thank the you. solution is. Perhaps springs round the corner, summer comes and we just don't need to use so much of it. That's yes. the only pragmatic solution at this point. Right. And just finally, going back to the police, I mean, a lot of papers this morning, if they haven't gone on Nicola Sturgeon, have gone on the other story involving Nicola Bully uh, and the kind of bizarre press conference yesterday where the police, who haven't exactly been uh, holding themselves up to, uh, to, to great scrutiny, suddenly uh, announced that she was a vulnerable woman um, who had issues with alcohol. And a lot of people being very critical of the police this morning, some of them police officers themselves, saying they shouldn't really be releasing this kind of information. What do you think? I think this is extremely interesting because the reality is that if if she had significant addiction issues, that does change the whole um, context yeah. of her disappearance. So you can't argue that it's not relevant if she did. Um, secondly, unfortunately, she's no longer here to to tell us anything more so we are you know in a realms of speculation 
Um, and I think that the police are feeling a lot of heat over the conduct of this investigation. I think they released that information under a great deal of pressure. I don't think they wanted to. Yeah. It can't be nice for her children. But I do understand why they felt it necessary to provide that context. Yes. Well, it's a fascinating story and a tragic story, and we'll follow it, uh, it all the way through today as well. Isabel, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. We'll see you tonight at 8 o'clock. Back tonight, of course, with uh, Piers Morgan Uncensored, uh, Isabel and Richard Tice. We'll be checking in with that later on tonight. Isabel, of course, uh, taking on after the JK uh, Jeremy Cole live show. I'll be on that tonight as well. Coming up next, though, we're going to be talking to Alex Salmon, the former uh, boss of Nick. Nicola Sturgeon, the former leader of the Scottish National Party, the man who more or less set up Nicola Sturgeon's political career. We'll find out from him. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the only place to be for all sorts of reasons. We bring you the news that other people don't want to go towards. We bring you common sense. We bring you all the views, not just from the politicians, not just from the people in power, but also uh, from the people that matter. And that is, of course, you. And there's been an extraordinary reaction to the news that we broke on this show yesterday that Nicola Sturgeon was to step down in a dramatic surprise move uh, as First Minister of Scotland. Um, I know Nicola Sturgeon well. I used to to know her very well. Uh, Alex Salmond, of course, used to be uh, her mentor, a man who created her in a way as a politician, uh, a man who was sensible enough to have her as his number two, so that when he left uh, as leader of the SNP in 2014, following the referendum on independence, he had somebody he could hand power over to. She has not done that. She has nobody to hand power to. And the SNP now finds itself, I think, in a bit of a vacuum. But let's talk to uh, Alex Salmond, former First Minister of Scotland himself, former leader of the SNP, now leader of the Albert Party. Alex, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, enough time has now passed. I mean, I know you've been talking a lot about this story because obviously you're right at the heart of it, right at the centre of it. But but I wanted to ask you more about sort of personally how you feel about this because your relationship with Nicola Sturgeon has been uh, all over the place. It's been from it's gone from mentor to friend to enemy to I don't know what it is now. But but you know she's a remarkable woman in many ways. But I find it incredible that she, as clever as we know that she is has made so many blunders in recent years that we've led her, she's led herself to this point. Yeah, I mean, I never like seeing people resign, so I felt for Nicola yesterday. I mean, I've been there, Mike. Yes. <laughs> it's not an easy process. But, you, but you're right to, to say that uh, the difference between now and 2014 when I resigned is that Nicola was a shoo-in uh, to become uh, First Minister in 2014, and now the the field for the SNP and First Minister is wide open. Uh, I mean, there's old guard and there's new guard. Uh, my guess would be they might opt for the new guard on the basis of the, the old guard were, were up to snuff, then they wouldn't have been overshadowed by Nicola Sturgeon. But anyway, the field is wide open because uh, and Nicola, you know, she had many, many talents. Communication, obviously, during the COVID epidemic, much better than it was down here. But she's, while on independence, left the SNP without a strategy as well as without a leader. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you were to be harsh on her, you would say that she's achieved literally nothing in the field of independence. You know, the referendum result uh, in 2014 would be replicated. We are, we are led to believe by the polls, if you look at them now. No more people want independence now than did then. And after eight years, you'd call that uh, a pretty hopeless result, wouldn't you? 
Well, certainly, I mean, you know, Nicholas' strength as a communicator, you'd have thought would have had more effect on persuading people on independence. I mean, you know, if, you, if you can take a country through COVID, you might think you would uh, you'd be able to succeed on on independence. I mean, and Nicholas won elections. I mean, that's quite important for a politician. Yes. I mean, you know, if you win elections, you can't do anything. But certainly, she hasn't moved the dial of independence. However. Given the fact that independence is now at a much higher level than, say, it was you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, you'd be starting from, the next leader would be starting from a high base. You know, when I called that independence referendum with David Cameron back in 2012, independence was at 30%. Uh, so despite the recent poll setbacks, uh, you know, we're talking about a 50-50 situation, basically, Mike, and that's not a bad place to start from if you're going to conduct a, a referendum, an independence campaign. The other thing you'd have to say is, you know, the opportunities over the last few years, I mean, uh, have been manifest. I mean, you know, Britain has run like a failed state at the present moment. I mean, <laughs> the, the prime ministers uh, you're up against... Uh, haven't been up to much. Uh, I'm not up to much. Uh, so that was kind of a big opportunity to make the case. However, you know, a new leader comes in. You, it can be a reinvigoration of a party, a leadership contest. It can be a disaster, of course, like the Tory one last year. But it could be a reinvigoration. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's that's worth thinking about, isn't it? Because there were those in the Tory party who thought, you know, let's have a new beginning. Let's get a fresh start. Let's get this trust in. Uh, let's get rid of Boris Johnson. And then look what happened. You know, so here we are. I mean, I was thinking this morning as I was coming into work, knowing I was going to be talking to you. I'm thinking to myself, you know, potentially this could be a real disaster for the SNP as an entity. Because, you know, she's made it so much about her in recent times. Um, and I'm not, you know, here to sort of dance in a grave or anything like that. But but she has made it such a cult of personality that without her and her as leader and sitting on the back benches, I mean, what's the SNP for? I'm not sure that anyone in Britain could name a single member uh, of the Scottish Parliament SNP team uh, or indeed even the London one now. Well, I can. Well, I know you can because I mean, you're, you, you should be able to. I mean, I would expect you to be able to do that. But I don't think anybody's ever heard, for example, uh, of Stephen Flynn. I heard him interviewed this morning and he didn't seem to have a clue what to say or what to do. He didn't know who was going to be the leader. He didn't know what their policy was going to be uh, on transgender rights. He didn't know what their policy was going to be uh, on the new bill that this went through. He didn't seem to know what their policy was going to be on independence. Yeah, but I mean, look... Uh... You know, Stephen uh, Flynn's a, a relative newcomer, uh, and he'll uh, he'll soon get uh, used to handling and bamboozling questions from the likes of you, Mike. <laughs> and, and it's not really fair to, to ask the, the newly elected Westminster leader, you know, firstly, who the next leader's going to be. He's going to have to make that backing very careful choice, or what they're going to do about issues like transgender. I mean, one of the puzzling things, Mike, is over just the last few weeks, the number of own goals, unforced errors, like the transgender debate, but that's not a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult, sensitive issue that requires sensitive handling. But, you know, it's easy enough to, to, to square the issue, to find a compromise, to, to accept some of the amendments that were made by the SMP backbenchers, to take the sting and heat out of the issue. The, the big things that the, the SMP government have to face are the problems in health and education. And, and stop, you know, having unforced errors like not dueling the A9 or this ridiculous bottle scheme. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, the idea that, that, that they've even... That's one of their achievements, allegedly, which has gone horribly wrong, is a bottle deposit scheme. I mean, is that well, really... 
<laughs> is that? I mean, is that really what Scotland needs? I mean, for heaven's sake, I'm looking at some graphs in the Telegraph this morning. Drug-related deaths under Nicola Sturgeon have soared. Life expectancy is getting shorter. Poor children are not catching up uh, with better-off kids. Um, and government deficit lags other nations. I mean, you know, there is nothing good there. And yeah. it seems to me that this whole transgender issue was cooked up because of um, Patrick Harvey and the Green Party, because of this kind of, you know, obsession that Nicola, for some reason, has got about it. And she didn't need to even do it. You know, if she hadn't touched the issue at all, what difference would that have made? Well, I mean, to be fair, if you're a, a Scottish nationalist, you don't really want the Daily Telegraph writing your report card, Mike. It might be not totally Listen, we had Alan Cochran on yesterday. Now he's back on the front page. He's made his return. Oh, well, Alan... Alan, Alan will be loving it. I mean, you might not dance in Nicholas grave, but Alan will be dancing away. <laughs> but but you do make a, a serious point, uh, and that is if you look at the the, the difficulties, disasters recent of, of the SNP government, they, they've all got a green source behind them. You know, the Greens have gone into government. They don't like roads or building roads. The A9 promise is reneged upon, which is huge in the Highlands, incidentally. Yeah. Uh, and certainly should be now re uh, reestablished as quickly as possible. The Gender Recognition Act, the failure to accept very reasonable amendments, can only be explained by green pressure. This bottle return schemes under the control of a well, and the controls are wrong word. It's out of control under the green uh, a green minister. You know, it, it does seem that the green tail has been wagging the SNP dog, yeah. much to the detriment of the government and the uh, and the position of. Uh, of the SNP, but also, and what really interests me as leader of the Alpha Party, the position of Scottish independence. So what we're hoping for is somebody emerges out of the pack, and that might happen in a leadership contest, it's happened before. That person will see the opportunity to reunite the, the national movement, to, to bring in all the people who've been excluded by Nicola Sturgeon. I'm not talking here just about political parties, but I'm talking about the cross-party groups, the non-party groups, the people who were so prominent during the referendum campaign and did so well, uh, and reinvigorate the movement on that basis. Also, try and separate the business of government, which is always difficult, Mike. All governments, even competent ones, have difficulties. You have to separate that from the pursuit of independence. So, so you, when the government runs into bumps in the road, you don't damage the independence yeah, campaign. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think you've made that point very, very eloquently because of what seemingly Nicola Sturgeon lost sight of is what the SNP is for. And the SNP is supposedly in government, having unseated, you know, the uh, the Labour Party, which was the ruling party of Scotland, an incredible achievement in a way that the Labour Party has been more or less ousted out of what was one of its absolute strongholds in Britain, right? They then get government. They then want to achieve devolution. They get devolution. They get the powers they want. They then push forward for independence. And then they forget about all that. And they start messing about with bottles and transgender rights and all the rest of it. And what you've just described to me, Alex Salmond, is your job application for leading the movement. Because you're the only guy up there that can do it. Yeah, but there's a slight drawback. I'm not a member of the Scottish National Party. No, but you don't Party. have to be. You've just described the movement of independence. It's not the Scottish National Party anymore. It's independence, pure and simple. Well, it's certainly true that if you... The, the idea of reuniting the movement is through the vehicle of a, an independence convention, which will bring all the groups together. That's an idea that Nicola herself supported once, but you know, not more recently. So that would be the way to do it. You know, It would be that, that through that proposal. But it's, it's urgently needed. Now... What would you be doing? What would that independence convention be doing? Well, two things I can suggest. 
One, you would focus the independence campaign on issues that are going to be telling and persuading people. Like, for example, we've got a million Scots who can't afford their heating bills in a, an energy-rich country, in a country which has got energy sources coming out of their ears. Folk uh, can't afford to turn on their heating. That's what matters to people. Uh, and also the, the pursuit of self-determination. Scotland's a nation that has a right of self-determination. That right's being denied. That's what's going to get the... The, the backs of people in Scotland up, that's going to, what's going to get the, the heather burning or at least smouldering in Scotland uh, when, you, when you argue that campaign and not get it stuck in the, the long grass of this problem, that problem and, and that series of unforced errors. So you know, the opportunity is there. Remember, the SFB, and this is the difference between a generation ago, is the most powerful party in Scotland. The national movement is the most powerful political force in Scotland. You know, this, this game is not over. This no. game is... Uh, they have to be played. Well, it could, well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'll, I'll come back to you to make one more point. But, you know, yes, the game is afoot and maybe the game has only just begun because at the end of the day, without a decent leader, the SNP is not a very united party. Let's face it, there are people talking about the possibility of a young woman who's currently Chancellor um, who could become the leader. But, you know, she would be, I would have thought, completely opposed to certainly the Transgender Act. She's, she's a, a, from, a, from a small independent church. She's got very conservative views. There are many people in the SNP that you know who are left-wing of Jeremy Corbyn. Well, the, the Free Kirk of Scotland wouldn't be mine being called independent because uh, that's one of its uh, key aspects. But uh, it probably was being called small. I mean, it's a fairly substantial <laughs> denomination. But listen... You know, I don't take this stuff about, you know, somebody of a, a faith cannot be leader of Scotland. All you have to do from that perspective is to say these issues are matters of conscience. So as long as you don't try to dictate other people's conscience, as they, as you would expect them not to dictate yours, mm. then a whole range of difficult, challenging issues quite legitimately can be placed as matters of conscience, not where you try to, to put people through party discipline. Uh, as they did in the, gen in the gender recognition bill. So, I mean, that, that, that doesn't disqualify somebody from, from leadership. And, you know, there are other uh, younger uh, candidates, Ash Regan, Neil Gray, for example. Now, I, I don't know if, if, if any of these people are up to the, uh, leading the national movement forward, but one interesting thing happens during a leadership campaign is you, you tend to find out. And it wouldn't be the first time in politics that a relatively unknown figure has emerged to be a, be a significant figure. I was rather amused for by, but you know, I saw one of the Labour commentators saying that Nicola Sturgeon's resignation has handed Sir Keir Starmer the keys of Number Ten Downing Street. If you rely on somebody else to give you the keys of Ten Downing Street, you'll never get them. No, the you people never will. who win are the people who do it for themselves. Uh, you know, Sir Keir Starmer's dull as ditch water. I mean, you talk about inspiring people. Well, I mean. Poor old Sir Keir Starmer once again blunders his way into a press conference. Um, by the time he'd finished his press conference and people were starting to write the story up, Nicola Sturgeon resigned. So he's not even made the papers today, unfortunately for him. But one final question, I'm going to ask you one more time. If you were asked to unite the independence movement in whatever role, would you do it? Oh, I, if I was asked to contribute, I mean, look, I spent a lifetime fighting for this cause. I'll continue to fight for this cause. I'll do it in whatever... Uh, role that's uh, that's available to do it and i'll do it positively and trying to keep people on the vision which i think is uh, is so important for the the scottish nation and that's to be self-governing and to take the responsibilities that come with it that that, that is the way forward for scotland and, and you know we'll get the occasional highway and byway on the way 
But I suspect we'll get there in the end, mate. Well, listen, Alex, I suspect we're going to be talking to you quite a lot over the next few weeks and months, so uh, stay where you are. Don't go anywhere. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Alex Salmond, uh, former First Minister of Scotland. Uh, could he be the man that actually takes over? You never know. You know, Stranger things have happened. Boris Johnson uh, is a man who many say is the only man that can come back and lead the Conservative Party to victory. Is Alex Salmond the same guy in Scotland? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Talk. Unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, Thursday. Uh, we are getting near the end of the week. Thursday Club coming up a bit later on. Helena Nicklin will be here. Uh, we were early on Chris Evans' show this morning uh, with some tequila. Uh, I have to say we haven't actually drunk any yet, I'm pleased to say, but it is apparently Margarita Week coming up, uh, so we'll be celebrating that. Not an awful lot to celebrate uh, if you're a British gas customer, however. British gas owners' profits have soared uh, to £2.8 billion from £392 million this year. Uh, millions suffering from soaring energy bills, of course. The price of gas has actually fallen. The price of wholesale gas has never been lower, I don't think, this year. Uh, but Andy Mayer is going to tell us why it is that that is not somehow being passed on to the customers. He's the energy analyst at the Institute of Economic Affairs. We'll be talking to him about what on earth is going on in our energy markets and when can we expect, as inflation now falls and as it is expected to fall below 10%, uh, when are we going to get our country back? When are we going to get our money back? When are we going to get uh, our cost of living down so that we can actually afford to do things again? That would be my point. Coming up later on, we're going to also speak to Sergeant Richard Cook, Chair of the West Midlands Police Federation, on the news uh, that the knife and offensive weapons sentencing statistics are out today. Uh, and I'm afraid they don't look very good. Howard Cox joins us as well. Uh, he is, of course, uh, the founder of Fair Fuel UK. We want him uh, to tell us all about why the Welsh have decided to stop building roads and any road projects because they're trying to save the planet. And we'll find out why London is now the slowest uh, slowest city in the entire world. Incredible. Absolutely amazing. But let's kick things off with Andy Mayer, Energy Analyst at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Andy, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Huge profits once again. I mean, this seems to be a pattern emerging, doesn't it? You know, if you run an energy company, you're doing all right. And a lot of people ask me the question, if the price of all this stuff is going up to such an extent that they have to charge us so much money, how is it that they're making more money than they ever did? So this is interesting. So this is Centrica's profits, and Centrica is the parent company of British Gas and a number of other subdivisions. And it's not British Gas itself, which is the customer-facing arm, the one you pay your bills to, that's making lots of money. I mean, they do; they are slightly profitable. Um, but they've not made much of a difference there, and they tend to make about £8 per customer. So that, that's not the bit that should cause concern in terms of their success. And the bit that is successful, it's really all about renewable energy and drilling for gas and trading gas. So their trading arm, for example, has gone up from £70 million of profit in 2021 to £1.4 a 1900% rise. And presumably and that's, that's, due, to the fact, but presumably that's really, due to the fact, Andy, that the price of gas has gone through the roof and it costs now a far deal greater than it used to. It's not just that. It's also that they hire very skilled people who predict the way these prices are going to move and then they make their profits off the difference. So they're trading 
energy resources across Europe, not just in the United Kingdom. And they are making bets as to whether or not the price of gas will be going up or down. And when those bets come good, they make money. When they don't, they lose money. Yeah, well, you don't have to be Nostradamus, do you, to make money on gas at the moment? I mean, for heaven's sake, well, if, uh, if Russia invades Ukraine, uh, you're going to buy a load of gas before they, they do it. And that way, uh, the price is going to go up and you make a bonanza. But also, when we were talking about this last year, people were predicting that these profits would be even higher because we'd have a cold winter. We didn't get a cold winter. So if you were the kind of trader who made that kind of bet back then, you'd have lost a lot of money. The other bit of it, the bit that's tripled in profit, is straightforwardly the bit that's exploring and drilling for oil and gas. And that's the bit we really need to create security of supply and ensure in the long term the bills come back down. So going by, right back to your question, the bills at the moment are about triple what they were about a year and a half ago yeah. before the crisis started. We don't see that because there's a price cap on domestic bills. So they look like they're about double. And we're all expecting the government to extend that for another three months in the coming budget so that we don't see it go back up again to nearly triple. Um, Cornwall Energy, who are the best analysts when it comes to forecasting domestic power prices, are predicting it double it will be about double during the summer and autumn months and then come the winter again it's going to really depend on whether or not next winter is really cold as to how those prices go back up or down so nobody's forecasting a rapid fall back to where we used to be on domestic energy prices but they are predicting that it's not going to be quite as bad as the worst case scenarios we were looking at only a year ago yeah but your explanation all sounds very uh, lovely and believable and all the rest of it but the fact of the matter is there are people struggling to pay their bills there are people who are taking decisions not to heat their homes on the basis that they can't afford to. Um, and here we have a company, regardless of which avenue they're making it from, it's all relatable to the price of gas, whether or not they're making it in the markets or whether or not they're making it because they're buying it for cheap and selling it for long, expensive bills. You know, they're making billions and billions of pounds and we're getting stooped. And I don't think that's fair. And I think British people, generally speaking, don't mind profit making, but they don't like excessive profit making. And even the British British gas side of things has made over £70 million in profit. And I think when you're charging the amount of money these people are charging, uh, unsustainably, in my view, uh, making it possible for the government to have to subsidise us with our own money, I think it's wrong. Well, I think breaking the company up into its different bits explains why that's not a very fair analysis, Mike. So it is a very if, fair yeah, analysis if you take, because... If you, if, you take, if you take the energy bills bit out of it, they're not making that much money. So if we were to say that that part of the company was to pay some kind of super tax or give lots of money back and they are giving some I'm not asking for them to pay a super tax I'm asking I'm asking for them to be reasonable about how much they charge at retail level for a unit of gas because I think what they're charging is wrong because they're making far too much money well that's because they're an integrated company it's not because they're offering a retail energy service. So what you're saying there really... Well, then they shouldn't be offering a retail energy service. And we, should, we, should get, we should get retail energy services then, in which case, uh, that handle gas at the price that it can be bought at. And if you can buy gas for a lot less money uh, than they're selling it to us for, then that's fine. You can make a bit of a profit, but not the massive profits they're currently making. When you look at what, what is the price of, of gas now, for example, if I wanted to go and buy wholesale gas, how much is it? I need to go back and check the day price, but last time I looked, it was about three or four times what it was back in the 2020s. So um, oil has come down quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, but it's but less than it was last year, though, isn't it? It's, it's a lot less than it was this time last year. 
um, last year was a particularly high price spike. Doesn't so, matter. It's come yeah, down. Should, my point is, it's come down. No, but my point. No, but my point. Andy, I'm not arguing with you about this. I'm yeah. arguing with them about this. The point is, is that the price has come down. It hasn't been reflected in the retail price, and that, for me, is not proper capitalism. It's not proper economics, and it's a racket. Well, the retail price is coming down, but you don't see it because the price is capped. So it's still above. Well, then the it's not level. coming down, is it? Well, it is coming down. The co- what matters in terms of the energy markets is the actual cost, not the fake cost that's imposed by policy. So you will expect to see some fall in your energy bills during the summer if Cornwall are right. But you won't see a massive fall because at the moment it's, all, it's about 3,200 for a typical home. So in other words, in other words these people will continue to gouge the public and they will continue to claim that they're having to do it uh, because of the market. It's a racket. I mean, the way they're going, we're going to end up. You know what's going to end up happening? What you're going to end up with, Andy? Hang on a second. What you're going to end up with here is you're going to end up with a Labour government coming in and going, you know what? Nationalise the bloody lot of them, and the people will say yes, do it, because actually we're sick to death of this ridiculous profiteering. And nationalisation will make not a jot of difference to the world or regional price of either oil or gas. So the Labour Party will then end up taxing us more to hide that cost difference. So this is not a solution. Nationalisation just means that you replace people who are trying to compete and keep their costs down with civil servants who will then be looking no. to... Well, the, well, the, system, well, the system is therefore broken in that case, Andy, because what we've got is a bunch of people getting very wealthy, thank you very much indeed, um, and a lot of people having to pay the price of that who can't afford it. And that will never be sustainable in any model that you wish to choose. You can be, you can be as yeah. theoretical as you want, but it will bust not, the system. Theory, this is reality denial going on that when you've got a problem of supply and demand not matching, the cost of things goes up. And what you need to focus on... Yeah, is the cost of things goes up and these people are making billions and billions of pounds. It's not sustainable, Andy. Well, that's as a result of various policies, particularly in Europe, to try and restrict the amount of gas and oil that we're getting out of the ground locally. So we are now reliant on foreign imports for a large amount of our energy needs. So that's not the company's fault. That's a result of the same policies implemented incidentally by Ed Miliband in this country when there was a Labour Well, Ed government. Miliband hasn't been in power for a long time, so you can't really blame him, even well, though I'd quite like bl- to. You can certainly blame him for the super normal profits that are being experienced by older renewable projects, because it was his renewables obligation. No, I don't buy that either. No, Ed Miliband hasn't been in power for 13 years. You know, we can't go down that road. The point is, this, well, my point is, and I'd like you to accept this, even though you seem intransigent on it, that this is not a sustainable model. People will get so fed up with this that they will opt to do something else and they will not because it's not possible for people 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 can't pay thousands of pounds andy a year for the energy they can't afford it when when the energy markets were liberalized back in the 1980s and 90s we had record low bills and that was as a result of the dash for gas that reduced bills across the board and saw also carbon emissions falling because we retired lots of coal-fired power since then, we decided to start putting some climate ideology on top of it, and we accelerated our rush for renewables, which added a vast amount of intermittent power at very high prices, which we are still paying for today, and that's driving part of the market. It's certainly true that the recent price spikes are caused by very expensive gas, but those renewable rewards are linked to that price of gas. The later systems don't have that problem. Later renewables are cheaper. But we are not in a position... Well, we keep hearing that. We keep hearing that renewables are going to be cheaper, but the bills don't reflect it. People are paying too much for their energy. It has to change. You're in the forefront of of this. You can't magic free energy from somewhere. You've got to pay for it somewhere. It's either going to be nuclear renewables or it's going to be oil, gas, coal. 
And at the moment, we are heavily reliant on gas, which happens to be the part of the market that's been spiking for about 18 months. Yeah. Well, maybe we need somebody with a brain in government to fix the system. Maybe you should yeah. be advising him on how to do that. Well, Instead of telling us that it's all yeah. gone to hell in a handcart and nobody can fix yeah. it. If, we're going to, if we can restore a market so that these different energy sources can compete with each other fairly with some kind of carbon price to adjust for the difference in the damage done by fossil fuels, then we could get back to a system where we're paying the lowest price possible. But we can't do that when everybody's focused on trying to get to net zero as fast as possible. Well, net zero is a ridiculous our idea. Own resources. It's a ridiculous idea and it's costing everybody an awful lot of money. Finally, we got to a point of agreement, Andy. Yeah. Very so, nice. Um, very good. See you soon. Take it easy. Andy Mayer, Energy Analyst at the Institute of Economic Affairs. We got there in the end. I don't think people are going to put up with it any longer. They're just going to be so fed up, they're going to go just nationalise the whole lot of them. You're going to go Venezuela style, just lock it all down, grab it all and start giving it to the people, the consumers, so that they can afford to pay for it. What's wrong with that? If you ran a political party based on that, and I'm talking to you, Richard Tice, people would vote for you. Bring it all back home and make it cheap and people will buy it in their droves. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, Here's one from Robin, West Sussex. Hello, Mike. Retail energy is definitely a racket. Wind and solar are priced based on the gas price. Why? Why? And get fracking for gas, for heaven's sake. Well, I think that's right. We really do need to take a proper look at the way that our energy bills are put together, the way that we are letting these companies away with murder, literally making billions and billions of pounds. I don't care how the company's constructed. I do care about ordinary people in this country being unaffordably uh, screwed and being put out of uh, business practically and unable to heat their own homes because they can't afford to. Listen to Ellie, a pensioner, terrified of seeing the next gas bill. Those are the people I care about. I couldn't give a stuff for the markets or Centrica or the shareholders. Sorry, if that makes me a communist, then so be it. Let's talk to Sergeant Rich Cook, who's chair of West Midlands Police Federation, of course, because we need to talk to him about more statistics that have come out uh, on knife and offensive weapon sentencing. Uh, this is a big report which is coming out um, of the various um, England and Wales departments of crime. Government statistics from gov.uk. Uh, knife crime and prolific offender statistics in the home counties. It's up to 10 times higher than a decade ago. Uh, this is home office data and the Recent police recorded crime figures show a 21% increase in the number of knife and offensive weapon offences recorded from 37,700 in 2021 to 45,600 uh, in 2022. So it's a pretty depressing picture, I'm afraid. Uh, Sergeant Rich, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. I mean, we don't really get any good news from the crime stats these days, do we? Um, what, if anything, is going to be done about this? Yeah, unfortunately, we've had years, uh, the, the wasting decade, I think, in, in relation to violent crime and knife crime. You know, we've moved away from our traditional model of, of policing in this country, which was based around uh, local accountability, local leadership, engagement with people. Um, you know, that that's well documented. We've, we, we've, we've had a lack of resources over that period, and perhaps we could have done things better. Um, but I think we've got to get urgently back to being 
in in communities embedded there, having the engagement, having the intelligence that flows from that, and and crucially acting on the intelligence and being proactive to stop uh, knife crime with things like stop and search, section sixties, and and other tactics we can we can use to address this. And how has it fallen so far back, neighbourhood policing? Because we see a report again from the Labour Party today that nearly one in four police officers are stuck behind desks. They never get out. They're not out on the beat. You never see them. They probably would like to be out on the beat. Um, But where did this all start to fall apart? Well, it started, obviously, with the the austerity um, in the last decade and and we had to cut back. And and the the way we did it in my force was to heavily centralise departments, and I think so. We moved. Uh, we became more remote from the public. Um, we, we closed police stations. We put custody blocks miles away from the officer, um, which meant that officers spend half the day travelling round to, to these big custody blocks, mm. and not actually on their own patch. Yeah. You know, uh, um, and 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 the public see us in a blaze of sirens and blue lights, and we're not getting out the cars and speaking to people. That's what we've got to start yeah. doing. Um, to stop these, these this sort of um, atrocities on the streets. Yeah, exactly right. Because people are committing these atrocities on the streets, I think, by and large, not just because of the fact that they're like, less likely to see a police officer now, but also, even if somebody calls the police, they're less likely to see one, or it's going to take them a lot longer to get there. And even if they do see a police officer, and even if they do get arrested, there's a pretty good likelihood they won't be charged. There's a pretty good likelihood that if they are charged, they won't be uh, put through the prison system or the justice system for years to come. Um, and the whole um, you know, justice network, it seems to me, is failing at every level. Yeah, you, you're speaking to the to um, the converted here, Mike. I, I, I totally Sadly. Have not. It is it is it's extremely regrettable. You know, uh, my my colleagues and I see this daily. You know, the, there are problems in the criminal justice system, and the pressure backwards is to keep uh, criminals who need to be behind bars out of the justice system we hear stuff about not criminalizing youngsters we've seen the results of that with instances well we had a job in redditch that, that was sentenced the other day a guy who just speaking to some yobbos in a in a store in redditch mm. was murdered by a 15 year old we had a lad a 20 year old lad murdered brutally on the streets of Walsall by a, a big gang, feral gang of thugs with armed with knives you know it's just horrific, and, and the politicians have, have got to grasp this issue and do something, and it's about the start to the finish. The, the police uh, making sure people know they're going to get locked up, they're going to get detained, they're going to get remanded in custody, and they're going to face the courts, uh, and, and actually giving the courts the, the clear message that you need to... The number one priority should be to protect innocent members of the public, not worry about the rights or the the sob stories that uh, offenders come come out with. No, quite. I don't know whether you were able to watch or listen to anything anything that Yvette Cooper said this morning. She was kind of addressing a lot of this uh, in a speech um, about what the Home Office would do under Labour and how they would try to, I think, engage more with communities to try and talk to the police, to try and talk to community groups. You know, it all sounds very good, of course, but, I mean, do you have any faith that that could be something that could work? I think, generally speaking, politicians should stay out of policing. I think politics has infiltrated us uh, way too much already. And, and, and commanders, local commanders, know what's best for their areas and their communities. So we don't want straight jackets. We don't want prescriptive measures. We want local 
police in local communities accountable to to their their people and doing what's required in that area um you know the last thing we need is is people from above telling us we've got to do this that or the other although generally speaking you know call it neighborhood policing call it what you like we do need to get back to that local thing but it starts with infrastructure you know we've got to have a police station for people to go to the least the taxpayer deserves is a is a police station in every town or borough well my local my local police station in london uh, has been knocked down. It's not there anymore. Yeah. Uh, they're putting flats yeah. up. You know, that's happening all over the country. 100%. And, you know, it, it will take a hell of an investment to put that put that right again. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So we've got to be very innovative in, in how we can get back uh, our bases in communities. Um, and, and as I say, it's so vital we talk to people because... People talk about, like, Section 60, the power to search, stop and search without reasonable grounds. Communities are far more receptive to that when we've been able to explain that these are the tactics we might use in the future. We've got a problem in this area. Mm. We might need to do this rather than just dropping it on them um, after something's happened. So, you know, if we can do that, you know, we'll, these are necessary measures. Stop and search is one of the best tools, but it's constantly denigrated yeah. by people who have, have appear to have an agenda yeah. against policing. And, and, well, because and they accuse you of racially profiling people and stopping the wrong kind of people and just stopping people because of the colour of their skin. You know, but the statistics, unfortunately, show, whether you like it or not, that an awful lot of young black men are getting stabbed um, and they're becoming more likely to be victims than young white men. Young white men are getting stabbed as well, but not in as big a number. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen the stats, and and unfortunately, uh, young young black people are about twenty times more likely to be victims of homicide, and that's yeah. that's a terrible um, indictment of what's going on. And we've got to protect those those young people and children. That's what I want to do, mm. and that's what all my colleagues want to do. It's not a it's not a race issue. Um, you know, I think half the population, the black population of Britain, lives in London. And in urban areas, yeah. and that and, and that's not a race issue. It co- it coincides with high levels of deprivation, high levels of crime, and and that's just the way it is uh, at the and moment. These, yeah, these, these are change. simply these are simply facts. But you've got a campaign that's been going for five years now, uh, life or knife. I mean, do you go into schools? Because an awful lot of these kids are still at school, and what that must tell you is an awful lot of them are carrying knives into school. They are, and we've had some horrific incidents within schools and colleges. Um, one that springs to mind before Christmas was a, a Stetchford in a place, an area of Birmingham, a sixth form college. A kid, a kid had a had a hand chopped off within the college facilities. So we do have those campaigns. It is important that we do the education side. We do. Um, the the communication with partners, you know, like ambulance, ambulance GPs, um, all those partner agencies. But fundamentally, we've got to be less risk averse. We've got to be proactive, and we've got to be unapologetically using those tactics that I've explained, um, with, without fear, fear or favour. You know, uh, and yes, explaining why we do it and doing it respectfully, but actually doing it because yeah. for too long. 
we haven't been doing it. No, and that is the problem. And I think that is the uh, the problem for an awful lot of what's going wrong in this country at the moment. Rich, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Sergeant Rich Cook, their chair of the West Midlands Police Federation. You know, the knife crime statistics are horrifying now in this country, and there's no sign of it getting any better or worse. If you're a parent, uh, particularly of a young teenager, particularly of a boy, but also of a girl, you must be pretty worried about what they get up to when they go out on the streets of this country because it isn't just happening in London. It isn't just happening in the cities. It's happening all over the place, in every part and every little village and town in Britain. It's extraordinary. Um, a very angry Mel from Oxfordshire has sent me this. Mike, I worked in power generation and I can tell you the blame goes to the EU's LCPD, which is the Large Combustion Plant Directive, and call me Dave Cameron. The LCPD shut our coal stations and around 2005, Cameron's government was approached by the power generators several times seeking permission to go back to the EU to ask for more running hours for coal stations, but they were denied each time. They also repeatedly warned him we would be putting our energy security in Putin's hands, but it did no good. Well, that's all very well, and I'm sure that's true. However, my answer to that is it's all very well blaming David Cameron, all very well blaming Ed Miliband, as Andy Mayer was doing. But at the end of the day, we are now several uh, years on, or at least a decade on from that time. So let's fix it. If they were too stupid to have fixed it at the time, let's fix it now. How about this from Rita? We used to pay about £87 a month, but in the last week I was asked to pay £500 a month every month, which would be £6,000 a, uh, £6, a year. I said, no, I will continue to pay our bill in full monthly. If that's not suitable, I go to a different supplier. I don't use that in the summer. Exactly right. Absolutely right. Don't give them your money before you've actually used their product. In what other world would you do that? You wouldn't give people a load of money before you actually had the product in your hands, would you? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, we're going to talk to Howard Cox about the bad state of our roads. But at least we've got some. In Wales, you end up on a dirt track. They're not building any more roads. They don't want you driving there. Just walking, please, and cycling. This is Talk TV. Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is the only place you get common sense, right? I mean, we've already stripped bare the problem uh, with the energy crisis in this country. You know, they're just charging us too much money. Reduce the amount of money you charge us. This could become a campaign of mine because so many of you are getting in touch to say how ridiculous the situation is. Why are we being forced to put up with it? What is the point of having regulators if the regulators are all in cahoots with the people who are actually making the energy and selling it to us? This is from RH. He says this, Ofgem are part of the problem. As my supplier, Octopus Energy, say blame Ofgem, although the cap is supposed to be a maximum, not a minimum. Eon and Ecotricity shamelessly charging the same tariff while saying they are renewables. We might have to get Dale Vince on about that. He's the ecotricity man, uh, of course. He's a good friend of the show, even though we don't agree about anything. Uh, he normally does stand up and speak up for himself. So we'll get him on to find out what the problem is there. But there is absolutely no excuse for the amounts of ludicrous bills piling through people's letterboxes, frightening the bejesus out of people, particularly elderly people, who haven't got thousands of pounds to pay to electricity companies so they can proudly boast on the stock exchange that they've made billions and billions of pounds in profits. It's not good enough. It's absolutely ridiculous. Lee says this, Mike, I've just looked at my British gas account. I'm £800 in credit. Why does my direct debit go up when I'm covering what I am using? Also, British gas paid in £67 to my bank account this week. It seems like a complete mess. Well, this is why I have always said, and I will continue to say without fear or favour, do not give them any money that you don't owe them. Do not pay a direct debit so that they can hold money on your account that they think they might need sometime in the future. I'm just not interested in doing that. 
absolutely not. No, thank you very much indeed. How about this on the subject of movement and net zero? Let's get this right, says Woodville. The same councillors and MPs who love freedom of movement throughout Europe uh, for people from other countries want UK residents to have 15-minute zone travel and no cars or new road infrastructure. Some hypocrisy here, I feel, absolutely. And on the subject of uh, Wigan and Lisa Nandy, Norman says, Wigan Town Centre used to be full of shops, markets, market traders. They destroyed that with big shopping arcades, the galleries. Now all that is being bulldozed and replaced with apartments, etc., with Chinese money and developers. Well, interestingly, that takes us on to our very next guest, who is Ian Williams, former foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News and NBC uh, and the Sunday Times, of course, author of The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. China has been in the news a lot this week, not least because of the fact uh, that all these balloons have got up. Some people think they're all from China. I'm not so sure. Ian will tell us. Uh, Also, what about all the police drones that we have apparently operationally here, uh, which are made in China? And what about all of the other CCTV equipment that we have in this country, all made in China? Many people have decided that what we need to do is cut ties with China rather than have more of them. Let's see what Ian thinks. Ian, a very good afternoon to you. Hello there, Mike. Well, I mean, it's interesting to kick off with Wigan there because an awful lot of cities in, in, and towns in this country uh, are being sort of bought up, if you like. I know Brighton was, was certainly mentioned as being one where whole new kind of apartment blocks are being put up and m- much of the money was coming from China and many of the purchasers of the property were actually Chinese uh, citizens. That's right. I mean, there's an awful lot of Chinese money coming in and not a great deal of oversight as to where it's coming from, who's providing it and how it's being spent. We had a period during the uh, so-called golden era when the amount of due diligence uh, amounted to counting the number of zeros on the Chinese (laughs) check. Yes. Uh, And it sometimes seems we haven't really moved on. Uh, And the oversight, the examination, the scepticism, which is more and more necessary towards China, simply isn't there. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because unfortunately, the phrase show me the money uh, seems to be the overwhelming um, sort of question that gets asked, you know, and as soon as you've got the money out, uh, you can pretty much do whatever you like with it. You can. And that leads me. And there was an astounding article in the China Daily, which is the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party this week, penned by Philip Hammond. Uh, the former chancellor, essentially said we should get back to business as usual with China, completely ignoring what's been going on over the last recent years, whether it's human rights abuses in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong, the COVID cover up, the COVID lies. Uh, it, It is just astounding that somebody of Hammond's stature should pen something like that, which would seem to say, well, let's just, you know, let's forget about all this. And uh, because we've got a lot in common and this commitment to open and free trade. Hello. Yeah. I don't remember China being committed to open and free trade. Well, particularly galling, is it not, when some of his former colleagues in the cabinet uh, and some of them still colleagues in the Conservative Party uh, have been issued with banning orders by China, uh, told that they can't travel there, told that they're sort of persona non grata. Exactly. The, 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 what we've seen out of China in the last, I mean, it's been going on for a while, I mean, as I explain in my books, but the last two or three years under Xi Jinping, the aggression that we've seen, the ability, the willingness to use trade, investment, market, market access for coercion, um, and indeed sanctions against and insults and threats against British politicians who deem to question China. Mm. And yet here's Hammond standing up and saying, well, come on, let's just get on. Let's all be friends. Let's get back to business as usual. 
I mean, it's really, really hard to believe that under the current circumstances, particularly uh, with this latest kind of um, balloon scenario going on, um, that he would make this the time to say such a thing. I mean, you know, I can understand some people who believe that, you know, the world is not an isolationist place and that as much as we may not like the people that run Saudi Arabia, we have to do business with them. Uh, it used to be said that Russia was in the same boat, but that's all gone a bit south now. Uh, but China, you know, we know what China are up to. We know that China now have control of all of the lithium mines in Afghanistan uh, because America pulled out of Afghanistan, left the airport, left all those uh, pieces of equipment from the American military. And the Chinese simply moved in and started operating the airport you know in Kandahar and all of the all of the mineral deposits in in South America and in Africa pretty much garnered now by China the South Pacific pretty pretty much overrun uh, by Chinese installations of one kind or another you know how is everybody letting this happen and just going yeah well you know that's fine we have to be so much more skeptical I mean nobody is advocating stopping trade with China or, or anybody else. That's unrealistic. But yeah. we have to be far, far more cautious. We have to be more aware of the real dangers of dependency. I mean, we've seen that in the case of Russia and hydrocarbons. And of course, with China, it runs so much deeper, uh, whether it's the control of the, the critical minerals that, that you mentioned, batteries for, 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 for electric cars, that there are numerous and very dangerous dependencies that are being created. And we need to examine these and examine the, the supply chains, which, which we are too reliant upon. Uh, and when you see Hammond coming out with comments like that, you think, what planet are you on? This is a former chancellor. Yeah. You have to be more cautious. Exactly right. And what do you make of all of this activity about these uh, Chinese um, balloons flying in the air? Because I find the story to be very weird. First of all, uh, I, I'm not buying the fact that this has been going on for years and years and years and the Americans have only really just seen what's happening. We've now got very confusing um, sort of um, messages coming out of the White House where on the one hand they say the first thing they shot down um, over South Carolina definitely was from China. But the other three things they shot down, including the one over Lake Huron, uh, they don't think were Chinese at all. Um, the Chinese yeah. have denied that it was anything other than a weather a balloon. You know, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we've had, what, two or three days now without a balloon, which yeah. is astounding. And throughout the world, suddenly people are putting their hands up and saying, oh, we've had a balloon as well right. flying over us. Um, I think you're right. I think a lot of these were um, perhaps private. Um, they were certainly not surveillance balloons. Mm. I think the one that was shot down uh, certainly was, and it looks like it was a fairly high-tech balloon. And pe people think about balloons and they think about these things drifting around, along in the currents. They think about uh, they, been surveillance balloons, reconnaissance balloons for, for centuries. Yeah. But the new generation of balloons, which the US, China and others are researching, are pretty advanced um, in terms of the computing ability, in terms of the sort of kit they can carry for sniffing out electronic communications mm. and all sorts of other stuff that goes on below. And in some respects, they're more effective than satellites because they hover up there in what's called near space right. instead of outer space. They can see more. Uh, they can they can stick around for longer because they do have the ability to loiter, the ability to, yes. to, to navigate. Yes, and I was told that one of the advantages as well is that if you are hoping to hide something from a satellite, 
um, you basically figure out exactly when it's going to be passing over wherever you are. Um, and you can, if you need to hide things, you can hide them. And the satellite doesn't spot them. So in that sense, I can see why a balloon might be more useful. But the bit I don't get is why America has not said anything about it before. You know, either, is... either they did know and they didn't say anything, or suddenly because it came down a bit low and people could actually see it, they thought they'd better um, open up and, and, and be honest about it. But um, I mean, it even went as bizarrely far as for a, a, an American sort of Air Force general to come out and say, well, they might be aliens. <laughs> you know. yeah, that, that was remarkable and of course this was fodder to the rather large community in the states who study look out for aliens all yeah, the time absolutely <laughs> but uh yeah i mean the, the, the i think a lot of it was tied up with politics i think there have been balloons before when this thing was spotted because it was at a lower altitude than usual um because it probably did that in order to catch different winds in order to be able to hang around and loiter for longer because the winds are different at different altitudes. Right. And I think there was a lot of political pressure on, on Biden to take it down because, of course, the, uh, partisan pressure that he wasn't doing enough, he wasn't being sufficiently robust. Uh, and certainly there's a question also of why China would choose this moment to send it over, because right. it was just before that supposed meeting between Blinken uh, and the Chinese leadership, even with Xi. Right. And of course, that was blown out of the water by this. So I think there was a lot of politics at play. And I think these balloons have been around for a lot longer than we have perhaps been led to believe. Yeah. Well, let's see. If you were Blinken and you didn't want to go to this meeting, you know, what would you do? Oh, I know. Let's stick a balloon up and say it's Chinese spying on us and they'll go, sorry, can't come now. Well, or, or at the least, it would be if, if you thought that perhaps it wasn't such a good idea to go to China because it might not be the right look to be there meeting Xi at this moment, mm. then it was perhaps useful to have a reason to cancel the meeting. And perhaps you could equally argue that there are those in the Chinese leadership that perhaps didn't want the meeting to take place at this moment. And uh. it was convenient for them to float a balloon over the States. But yeah. I mean, it is it is remarkable. And, and as as you mentioned earlier, we had earlier in this week, this report came out about all these these Chinese cameras which are being used by British police yes. forces. I mean, this this has you know, been around for a while. There have been, there've been a lot of reports from parliamentarians and others about the danger of this Chinese technology. But it is remarkable. And even the surveillance commissioner pointed out he said, you know, who needs a balloon at 60,000 feet when every other policeman in the UK is walking around with a Chinese camera on his, on his body? <laughs> and this is it. And, and the fear is, of course, that they could just pull the switch uh, and none of it will work anymore. Or uh, it may well be that everything that they're filming is being fed back to a sort of central you know, database somewhere in Beijing. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the scary thing about this. I mean, there's a problem on several levels. There's an ethical problem because of the way these cameras are used for repression in China, in Xinjiang. Then there is the national security problem. There's the issue of where, when and if they could be shut down yeah. and the sort of data they're harvesting. Do you remember, uh, Mike, that movie, The Italian Job? I do. You know, I prefer the original Mike, to the remake, I have to say. Great, yeah. Charlie Crocker, Michael Caine. Yeah. You remember when they were trying to, to get away with the heist, they yes. closed down all the traffic lights yes. in Turin. Yeah. And, and believe it or not, that was used by Ian Levy when he was at the, the, the part of GCHQ um, in a warning, in a blog that he put out, uh, 
trying to make the point about the real danger of Chinese technology yes. in cities, in right. smart cities. Uh, you know, you can laugh about it a bit. You know, there's the, the Italian job. But the point he was trying to make, and this isn't, you know, this guy is a very clever individual that was working for the National Security Cybersecurity Center, part of GCHQ. And he was trying to make the point about the real danger of, of having this tech so pervasive um, in, in British cities. Incredible stuff, uh, but it's fascinating. And I have to say, we've got to run, I'm afraid, Ian. We'll get, we've got some other Chinese stories. We'll catch up with you another time. Ian Williams, former foreign correspondent for Channel 4 News. He's got a book out, of course, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. Um, and it certainly is pretty cold out there. Coming up, uh, Harry and Meghan back on the comedy circuit, uh, not because they want to be, just because people in America are making fun of them again. Shocking, isn't it? Darkly. What a terrible thing. Uh, Rupert Bell joins us. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.